0: Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad.
1: And I'm Marcus Thomas, and we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap.
0: Hey, Director's Takes Peeps, it's Oz here. So this week we have Lewis Arnold and we've had him in our crosshairs for a while. We were going to get him earlier, but we thought we'd wait. And when we sat down with him, man, he's a masterclass. You know, this guy has done some of the biggest British TV shows in the 2020s. So if you're a director who's emerging or you're a lead director, Lewis is so generous with his knowledge. There's something for everyone in this episode. So sit back. Favourite the episode because I'm sure you're going to come back in future and they'll need multiple listeners to take it all in. It's a special one.
1: Lewis is a talented and well-accomplished TV director. Most of you have probably seen his work in some capacity. And throughout his illustrious career so far, Lewis has directed several acclaimed TV shows, earning praise for his vision, notably the British crime drama Broadchurch, Dark Money, Cleaning Up with Sheridan Smith, And he directed David Tennant in DES, which among many accolades was nominated for an international Emmy. And his work on British prison drama Time, which was a smash and starred Sean Bean and Stephen Graham, won a BAFTA for best miniseries and Sean Bean won best leading actor. More recently, he has directed BBC's Sherwood, which was nominated for a BAFTA for Best Drama Series and a deal Actar won Best Supporting Actor. He has directed all seven episodes of The Long Shadow, which is ITV's new Yorkshire ripper drama. Welcome to the director's take, (laughs) Lewis Arnold.
2: That was a really awkward intro. I hate talking or hearing things like
1: when people do that. It's so awkward, but anyway. um, Hello. It's all your work, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: And I want to come in, actually, and just say two things, uh, Lewis, right? So, Obviously, you know, you've directed all these big shows, but to me, you're always my teacher. Because when I went to the, when I went to the NFTS, honestly, there was two things that happened. One thing was when I saw you, because I was so green at that time, this is going about six, seven years, I realised I was like, this guy is not a dick. He's a really nice guy. And he's just quiet. And he's just, and I thought, wicked. So that was one thing, right? And then the other thing was, if you want to have intervened at that time and helped, I probably won't be directing now. Because you helped me when I did curfew. And I remember you took me to the short office because I was gonna do this other film and you said, No, Oz has to make this film because it's his story, it's his thing, whatever he does, it's his film to fuck up. And I'll never ever forget that because that did then that gave me the confidence when I did that film to be like, right, I can do my this is my voice, so I can do that. And you've always been like that. Like I saw you at Dark Money a couple of years later and uh you had the exact same energy with me, man, so big respect to you man um thank you it's really weird yeah
2: i i I realized that i've I've taught you both in some capacity Um, yeah i mean i say taught, i don't actually teach i basically just spout everything that was told to me by a brilliant tutor, called ian seller and pass it on um as marcus can can of testify because he's been taught by ian as well but um he's a genius yeah no that was a really do you know that was a really special um group of um directors in, in that group we the you and Alice Seabry and, and Etta and there was it was a great great group that was and I really enjoyed that and you all made some great films you all made some great films
1: but yeah so just to kick it off a very first question very very basic is what do you think the job of a director is
2: um, I forgot that you're gonna ask me really like difficult difficult hard questions about craft uh, I thought we were just gonna talk I thought we we're just gonna talk about movies yeah. and stuff um, oh god okay <laughs> Um,
1: What's the job you do every day?
2: You know, I, it depends, obviously depends on, the, the, on, on what kind of director you are, if you're a writer director or if, you, if you're just a director. But I mean, essentially, regardless of if you're a writer director or a director, you're essentially the, the guardian of the story in many ways. Um, and what I mean by that is you have to take all the different disciplines, all of the different um, skills and craftsmen uh, and women that you employ Uh, to tell this story and make sure that uh, you are that everything is being tested against what the story needs and what the script needs. That goes from the right cast for the roles, the right lenses, the right style of how you're going to conceive the story. So I kind of see that you're sort of the, you know, you're the the guardian of the script in many ways and the story. Um, And you have to sometimes guard it from yourself as well. I think, you know, good directors understand that ideas come from every anywhere and everywhere and uh what's right the The best thing is what's right for the script regardless of anything and, you know as directors we're fallible and you have to sometimes protect the script from, from yourself at times as well um which is one of the harder parts of directing i think is to not let yourself get wrapped into the the script and the story to a certain extent obviously you always will because your tastes dictate but yeah, I don't know if yeah. that was a very good answer or not. I feel like I'm literally, I feel like I'm back at GCSE Media Studies. I <laughs> feel like I'm being, spot. yeah. But no, I just feel like I'm, yeah, like I'm gonna mess up. Um, there's,
1: there's no wrong answers. You're doing fine. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, with with that, we'll kind of touch on the craft uh, later. But and we won't go too deep into your background because there's a great BFI Network podcast from a few years ago. I think you did with uh, Matimba Kambalika, which digs into oh, yeah. your way into the into your pathway into into the industry, which we'll, we'll put a link to the notes. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the notes uh, of the episode. But um, you're one of the few people who left NFTS and was working pretty much straight away. So um, it would be cool to know about how you went about getting your first job, and why do you think it all happened so quickly from from there?
2: It's funny, isn't it, outside perception. For me, it didn't happen so quickly. It's, uh, it's a combination of like, you know, 13 years before I got my first job uh, and lots of sort of um, near misses and, and rejections. And um, it, it it feels, felt very tricky. I mean, I wasn't going to go to film school. I couldn't afford to go to film school. And also film school is not something I ever felt was in, was something I could do or uh, was in my stratosphere or my world. And uh, I just struggled to get an agent. For years and years and years,
1: what were the agents saying to you at that point? what were you struggling with?
2: Uh I just couldn't get agents to 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 bite or look at my work uh I finished university I made two short films, and the reality is those shorts weren't great, and I was probably still finding my voice is the reality in the hindsight now I look back you know but you feel ready before you're ready, and I think only when you move further down the path do you look back and think actually I probably wasn't ready um and that was you know i, I I developed a feature film off the back of one of the the films, and we got finance from private investors. The writer had got private finance, and um, I brutally got kicked off it. Well, first my my friend, my best friend who produced the short and we'd been working on this for years got kicked off it, and then um, and then I got a call from the co-writer to say that uh, the investors wanted a, a director that directed other work had got another film under their belt, and so they kicked me off my own film that I'd been developing for for a year or so uh, and we'd made the short which is the reason they were making the film you know we kind of made the, the, the short that which the... you directed yeah yeah exactly and <laughs> um and cast make and it makes sense yeah. and and that was that was the big turning point for me was i was the first assistant director on music videos at the time that's how i was paying my bills and i fell into that by chance you know i'm a big believer in in this industry for me it was a, a choice thing but when people ask me like you know, advice. I always say, try not to turn any opportunities down because opportunities lead to other opportunities. And I think there's lots of great examples of directors that have fell into directing or had an opportunity to direct something because of something else they said yes to, which they were thinking of not saying yes to. And for me, it was finances. You know, I I, I had to keep earning money. I I didn't have money or a pool of money. So I had to keep taking opportunities and whether that was camera assisting on stuff or whatever, running... um, and I ended up getting offered to first. I'm really kind of jumping all over the shop now, but I, I got asked to first on a music video by a production manager of the show that was made into a feature film. And he said, look, I, and I said, look, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never firsted. And he said, look, it's fine. Just, you just have to help the director run the floor. You know what to do. I'm, I'm sure you'll be fine. And it was a hundred quid. And I was like, as soon as he said it was a hundred quid for the day, I was like, I kind of really need that hundred quid. So I did it and I didn't realize But the runners, the two runners on that job both work for the production company, a music video company called Flim Productions. And uh, the next week I got a call being like, Oh, we've got another video, another director. Can you come and do it? It's 200 quid for the day. And I was like, Yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll come do it. And then literally the week later, I was on a Tiesto music video with a crew of 200, first in everybody wow. thinking that I was a professional, but not because of anything I did. but you know, because you give off a perception and I just kind of didn't let people know that I wasn't inexperienced. And um, I was really supported by the producer on that, Hannah, who I, I kind of scribbled together a schedule on a bit of paper and she was like, no, no, we're going to have to send it to the record label. Can you do it in, you know, in word processor or something? So I took an Excel and built a sort of schedule document, which I used throughout my entire career. And from then... Uh, and you know, first thing is the reason I ended up directing Misfits. There's a reason I'm coming around to this. Um, so I couldn't get an agent, lost the feature film and felt that I was going to be a first AD for the rest of my career, which wasn't something I wanted to do. I learned a lot as a first, you know, and this is why I say, you don't, you don't not ever turn down opportunities cause they lead to things. You know, I learned from really good directors and I learned things I didn't want to do from directors that I didn't particularly admire liked as people, but didn't, under or didn't, you know. I could learn from other people's mistakes, basically, and I could also learn from people's successes without actually being it something that was a, a target on my back. and And I enjoyed the process and the collaboration of being a first and learning about all the other roles. But uh, so I went to film school at that point because I'd lost the feature film and I was nervous that I was going to have to just be a first to, to financially. And I decided to go look at the NFTs and. The reason I ended up going in the end, I got I was very fortunate to get a place. I missed out, and then someone dropped out. I'd love to know who that person was now and thank them, but they dropped out, and I got the—I was—I must have been the first reserve, and uh, and then I got a place, and I wasn't going to go. I I couldn't afford to go, and then I went out with my friends. Two of my best friends, you know, said, Look, I'll loan you the money." And they don't have loads of money, but you know, one of them's a builder, and obviously had to be a bit of property. From when we were kids, that he'd invested in, and he was like, "Look, I'll, I'll loan you the money." And that I didn't ever take that that loan, but that belief and that sort of thing from my friends who'd never re- who'd supported me, but had never like you know, just made me go. Do you know what? I've, I've just got to go. Um, and inevitably, when you go to film school as a director, there's lots of support there. Just to say, you know, there's lots of support financially. Um, so never let money, you know, pull you off something like that. But I anyway, I, I came out of film school. I made. Really bad movie, which we can talk about at some point, but we, I made a really bad movie in my first year, which I learned the most I've ever learned on any film I've ever made. Uh, and then I made two films that I'm quite proud of, uh, Echo and Charlie Says, which are available online. Uh, they're, they're both available online, those films. And as, and what happens at the NFTS, which is what happens at most film schools, is there's an end-of-year screening and agents come. But before that, the agents generally will get their assistants to check out work. And I was really fortunate that my agent at the time sent charlotte her, her assistant uh and her, her assistant at the time Charlotte's moved on and she saw echo and then they came to the grad screen. and, and charlie says met with them and i think the big difference is when i went for my meeting with michelle who's my my agent i again and it comes down to this thing that i always talk about which is like there was a need for me i had to come out of film school and start working now whether that was in first thing again which i'd done throughout the whole of film school against the film school's wishes i'd had to keep firsting to 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 finance film school um so i was starting to first again as i came out as a way of earning money and some people do different things you know rose glass you know worked in a coffee shop or you know people have to find their way in that stage when you're sort of trying to transfer from aspiring filmmaker to you know working filmmaker uh and I went into that meeting and said, look, I need to work. And I was a big fan of a director who'd come out of the film school about five or six, maybe seven years ahead of me, called Toby Haynes, who ironically I, I interviewed as part of my Director's Now book. And Toby had got this reputation from everybody that I'd spoken to about, he came out of film school and then he did like stuff like, he did kids shows and Hollyoaks and he built his way up till he was doing... Uh, he did a really good Sherlock. I mean, he's just an Andor and, you know, he kicked off Andor and he's doing massive movies now. And what I, what everybody said about Toby was that he went in and didn't have an ego about what he was doing, but he went in with the attitude of, if he was doing Hollyoaks, I'm going to do the best episode of Hollyoaks ever. And that rubs off on the people that you're working with that are on those shows long-term. So I kind of was like, that's what I want to do i want to prove to people i can do this which is where you t- you know where you two are at it's like you feel you want to prove you have to you feel like you have to prove to people in senior positions of power that you can do the thing that you've been wanting to do forever and you've been training to do and working towards and uh so i just said to my agent look i, I want to go do doctors i want to do any piece of tv that i prove to people that i can do a red riding i can do this no one's going to hand me that I was very way no one's going to hand me high-end tv drama i've got to go and earn it and I was just very fortunate that Misfits was around. It was the last season and a block opened up. I'd met for it. I had a few meetings for it and didn't think it was going to happen. And then another episode, they basically broke up a three episode block into two episodes, so it didn't get the three episodes. They bro- broke it up even more, so the last episode became its own block. And then there was a two episode block and uh, I got off, I got asked to go back in and meet again, uh, a producer called Nick Pitt really believed in me and put me forward. And the only reason I got it, ironically, was because I sat in the last meeting with the, the head exec, Petra, at uh, Clerkenwell.
0: Uh, oh, and it was the
2: penultimate meeting before I met the writer. And uh, she was just very nervous about me completing schedule until I said, oh, you know, I used to, I'm a first. And, and sort of ended up sending her my CV, my first CV. And that was the thing that made her go, oh, okay. Oh, great. Okay, you understand the responsibility of your job as a director is to complete schedule. And I was like, yes, absolutely. Within reason. As long as I agree to the schedule going in and as long as there's no, you know, force majeure or whatever, like, you know, so ironically, that opportunity of first thing, which had been a financial thing, or even though I learned a lot from it, ended up being one of the things that unlocked the thing that I think we all come up against as directors and cinematographers. You know, when you are trying to be, if you've done short films and you're trying to get that first job. The general thing that you're coming up against constantly is a perception of, I don't know how long it took you to make those films. Can you do it on a budget? Can you do it on a schedule like this? And the reality is, yes, most directors can. If you like their shorts and can feel their style and their voice, and if they can't, you protect them. You put good firsts around them. You put good DOPs around them who are supportive. And you as a producer, or the producer, if you're an exec producer, you get a producer to support them. Like, it's... You know, it's it's not as difficult, I think, as maybe people think it is, and I think a lot of it is like you get a sense from the directors. I think when you meet who who are people that want to prep and want to uh, do the work, and people that don't. So, um, but anyway, yes, I was I was really fortunate. That was a really long way of answering a really simple question.
1: No, it's it's good to hear because there's I think the note about you saying yes to stuff. You can't really plan how the pathway is going to pan out and when your opportunity is going to come and how. When you look back, you look at the steps and how it all makes sense. And with that, uh, we should probably talk about your resource, which you created, uh, I think you touched on it there, uh, Directors Now, which highlights hundred different, over 100 directors' pathway into the industry. So, um, yeah, intrigued to know why you created that as a resource.
2: All right, just to touch on what you just said, you know, I feel like we're all slightly snobbery, snobby about... If you want to be a director, you're always slightly insecure and snobby about not being a director on a film set or whatever, and I feel like certain people from certain backgrounds have no choice. They have to make decisions based on, and ironically, all of the stuff I did was always basically financially driven. I had to earn money, I had to do these things. And I think actually, if you, be, it's too easy to become comfortable. You earn a bit of money and you've got a year where you you know, financially secure. To not say yes to the things that you, you don't have to say yes to. And I think you've got to be careful you don't miss out on opportunities. But uh, Directors Now came about, I suppose, very similarly to what you guys are talking about in your podcast with directors and the reason you create this podcast is, you know, when I was a kid, I literally consumed every biography of every director that I could from the age of 16 to 20. And I remember being at art school before I went to university and I had a bus journey that was an hour and a half there and an hour and a half back. So three hours every day on the bus with my friend Bonnie and I just would literally destroy book after book after book, spill all these big filmmakers. And then when I got Uh, and didn't learn anything from those books about I really enjoyed them but nothing that could help me in my career these guys made films in the 70s when there was no short films we're in a world now where there's thousands how do you get ahead so you know during lockdown I was in post on Des and I started teaching again so as, as you started the podcast I sometimes in between jobs will go and do, I go back to my old university at Gloucestershire and do guest lecturing. I sometimes go to the NFTS and do bits and pieces um, because I love it, really. I, I kind of love giving back. And my mentor, Jeff Thompson, who is a writer of martial art, the artist always says, you know, you have to give back into the universe to get out. And so I've, I've always sort of been a big believer in giving back as much as you can. And I, like I say, I really enjoy it. Like I loved working with both of you two on your films, like Caterpillar and, and, and Curfew and meeting people like you two and Alice Seabright. And there's a real buzz, you know, as filmmakers, as directors, we don't get to collaborate and work and help and nurture each other. And I feel like that's one of the things that directors now enable me was to have this conversation with over a hundred different directors. But it, it was born out of this desire that I think as young filmmakers, we want to pick apart the pathways of other directors to see what bits we can learn and how we can copy and imitate and maybe help unlock parts of our own journey. And it was during COVID and the group that I was teaching at both Bristol and, um, University of Gloucestershire, they basically weren't, they, as you know, what nearly happened with you, Marcus, they nearly, they weren't allowed to make their grad films. So they were literally at the point where they all got to select who was going to make their films. COVID happened and that whole year was written off and they basically didn't get to make anything and I felt gutted for them. So I. Reached out to sort of 40 or 25 filmmakers I knew and asked them the same five questions about their, their pathway as something that I thought would be interesting to these directors as it was to me as a filmmaker, young filmmaker at their age. And did that, delivered it to the students at both universities, and, the, and it was received really well. There wasn't a fat lot else going on at that time. And I spoke to Nev Pierce, who used to write Empire, some of book, such like Nev. And he was like, look, there's two things you can do. You can expand it and release it as a book and and get a publisher to maybe to buy into it and release it as a book, or you could set up a website and release it for free. And, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, certain people from certain backgrounds don't go to Waterstones to buy books on directing, but they might stumble across a website and go, "Fuck, this is the thing I've always wanted to do. And so I wanted to make it available for free. I wanted to make it an online resource. And so I basically opened it up. I asked about 150 directors, got about 105 to do it um and wrote the book so asked the same five questions about how it's called directors now www.directorsnow.com and it basically asks the same five questions to all the filmmakers about how they got their journey and we talk about filmmakers from film tv animation documentary commercial and theater uh how they got their break basically and how they sort of forged the career of where they're at now and these directors vary from like you know, there's Alex, there's a lot of people you may have already interviewed on there, Alex Seabro, and your peers and contemporaries. Uh, you know, there's a real, a mix of, of people on there. And the hope is that people read and sort of digest all these stories and find a couple of people they can relate to a couple of voices and, uh, situations that relate and that hopefully it unlocks something for them. We've basically NFTS because i, I have some good affiliations with them i spoke to john wardle about being one of six people that helped finance the websites it cost you know a couple of grand to set it all up and to ironically cost a couple of grand to proof the book and john wardle and the nfts paid for it all with, with no obligation a logo on the website and i kind I, you know I, I sort of did as much as i could put on the book and stuff uh and it's free to download the book uh, and the website is a resource. I'm currently, literally, ironically, as you speak to me today, I'm getting another 20 filmmakers to add to the website. And then eventually I'll, I'll start a second iteration of the books. So there'll be two books. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being really long winded again, but since it launched in 2020, September 2020, 2,000 people have downloaded the book and 32,000 people, unique people, have visited the site and kind of died. So it's kind of. And there's an audience for it basically and um i get a lot of emails for people to reach out for advice i point them in the i mean it's one of the reasons i did it was i point them in the direction of the website not just for my story but i say to them look there's a there's a hundred and there's more now there's 110 i think and i'm building it at the moment but there's a lot of stories on there you know you can download the document and take your time and the great thing about it being an online resource and the document is a pdf that you wouldn't get from a book is that and i hope when i get to put you two on there uh, which we should talk about after this, but uh, there's links to shorts on there. So you can click and watch the retreat or you could click and watch Caterpillar if it's available online or your future eyes or, or curfew. So it's like, it, it's interactive. It's not just here's the information. If the, the shorts are available on there, you can click and watch the shorts and really understand the filmmakers and also put all the social media on there. So if there's a filmmaker whose journey you're really excited by or that you relate to, you can follow them because our journeys are still evolving and you know moving forward. But yeah, I I love it. I, I I'm really. It's probably one of the most proudest things I've ever done in terms of all my work. You know, both both visual and non. I just wish we'd had it years ago. You know, when we were like sixteen. You know, but um, but
1: yeah. Again, with all this sort of stuff, we'll we'll put a link to that in the show notes for, and everyone should go check it out. I'll keep building it as much as I can. It's
2: just about finding time, and and luckily right now I'm I'm stood down, so. There's a few months where I've been able to sort of chase a few people and get a few additions. So I've just added, um, you know, Phil Barantini, who's a friend of mine who did Boiling Point, the TV series, which is about to come out, the short and the feature. So he's on there now. And as a Salim, who's just done After the Flood and he's done Neil Gaiman's and Nancy Boys. There's a few more I'm adding in, in the next few weeks. But yeah, do check it out.
0: Yeah, it's a great resource. I remember in the pandemic, I I, I spent a long time going through it. I remember you emailing me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's some great people. And and do you know what? The best thing about it is, so some some
2: directors are really brief with their answers and they're a paragraph. And then you get people like Rose Glass, Alice Seabright, who really, really... Andrew Cumming, like, who's just made his first feature yeah. film, which is about to come which out. That's great. You know, uh, Nick, uh, Nick Rowland, who made his first film a couple of years ago, Calm With Horses. These people really engaged with it in a different way where their answers are like essays. And what they're doing is they're... They're giving you their souls. Rose Glasses was so. When I read Rose Glasses, it was like, you know, if I, as someone that's not made a feature film, uh, which is why I'm so in awe of you, Oz, because you have made a feature film, and I think it's like one of the hardest things you could do as a filmmaker. And I'm so impressed by anybody that can. Which mm-hmm. is why when we, I remember the first day teaching you, I sort of sat down and just started quizzing you about about your feature <laughs> film, and being like, bloody hell, man,
0: like you, I should be where. Wearing... I think the first thing you said to me, "Why are you here?" That's what well, we yeah, were. because and I loved your film. I, I, your, I loved your feature as well. So I was a bit like you know, oh, yeah. but but
2: they're so honest and open in the same way that Sam is in that previous podcast. I thought Sam's podcast was brilliant with you guys. So open, so honest, and these filmmakers like Sam was. Have some of them have gone that far in their answers? Some less so. Some sort of you know the, the answers are there, but. And talking about their struggles. And it's really funny when you read all of the directors, you cover, you know, most of them, 60%, 70% of them are so open about the insecurities of being a director and how lonely it is. You know, we are the one discipline where, where, how often, I mean, you two are an exception, but how often do you get to sit on another director's set? Most directors live in this thing of not knowing if their way is the right way or the wrong way. And there is no right or wrong way, I suppose. But... Uh, so it's quite a scary place to be in the same way that writing is quite an insular, scary place. So, yeah, it's really interesting to read. But, yeah, I hope people enjoy it.
0: Well, when I think about yourself and I think about, like, you know, Alice and I think about Aneta, cause obviously I know you people, and I think what's really interesting is how you are all still, you all still respect how difficult it is to get up and you never forget it, which is why you, all of you give back. And I love that, and it's it's, it's a quality that, you know, because sometimes when directors do get there, they forget, and it's like it's gone, and it's like, nah, it's it's you know, this is you can take it can take ten years, it can take ten months, you could get on. So this is obviously all about pathways. So we've got we've got a question about this. What do you think the pathway for directors in twenty twenty three is? And do you think it's got better or do you think it's got worse?
2: Pathway leading to a credit. Before I answer that, I think what you just touched upon was, and I think you two can testify. And I think there'll be lots of stories that can testify. You know, my biggest fear that used to keep me awake at night. When you want to direct, if you really want to direct, like you two do, like many people do, it's in your DNA. It's it's there. And a lot of us have this fear that we'll never get to do it for a living. And it's the fear of wanting something so badly and knowing that it's not, a, there's only so much you can do because there are gateholders at every every path, every cross section, there's a gateholder that you can't control. You fear that you'll never, so that fear is what drove me and drives lots of us to keep going is that we have to keep going because there's nothing else we want to do and there's nothing else we can do and we're scared of a life not doing the thing that we we want to love and it's really hard for people that haven't found that thing in life that they're so passionate about to understand that and i had a lot of relationships break down because of that people can't quite understand the thing that this thing of like we'll just do do something different it's like it's just not in in me to do something different. This is, this is everything. It's my happiness, my well-being. It's everything. It's my passion, my love. It's the thing that drives me. And I think other directors and other filmmakers and other creatives understand that and anyone outside of that. So my family are non-creative. It's really hard for them to understand that. And that's why it's really important. And I kind of stress this to, I think both of you, when I worked with both of your groups is that we have to, as directors form networks of support. So when you talk about Alice and Annetta and it's like, you have to form support networks because like I said earlier, it's just a moment ago, it's, it's quite lonely and it's quite easy when you get to a gate that's closed to, to constantly feel like the gate's never going to open and you have to have support networks of people going through something similar. And that's one of the great things about film school. It's one of the great things about schemes and, but you can have it just by finding a click of people you make short films with. It's just about finding support networks networks, people that understand. In terms of that big question you've asked me, you know, I answer it quite a lot, you know, even in the sort of, you know, I graduated in 2013, so coming up to 10 years this year, or it is 10 years this year that I got my first TV credit. Um, so in in the ten years since I graduated to now, I think a lot has changed. It feels like uh, you know we've spoke about this uh, as a, as the three of us, but it, it it feels like there's less opportunities right now, which is mad. But it feels like there's less opportunities unless you're self generating stuff to get a break. So when I came through, there was coming up, I never got one. I got down to the last the last round, and we did a weekend workshop and. I unfortunately didn't get one, but lots of people did. Luke Snelling got one, and really great filmmakers who then went on and got uh, Mad Fat Diary. And so there was this thing that Channel Four used to do called coming up, where you'd make a half an hour film that was aired on Channel Four. Now that's a credit, and the only people that was open to were people that didn't have a credit. So immediately you'd got something where producers watched them, and then they changed it in like 2016. Mahaya Bella did one. They changed it, and they made just one, and it was a 60 minute. And I thought that was a real shame because whilst that was great for May, it wouldn't have changed anything if May had done a brilliant 30-minute one alongside another five filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So schemes like coming up don't appear to be there anymore, which is crazy because you think Netflix, Disney, you know, Black Mirror in a way could be – they could do a version of Black Mirror, which was for young aspiring writer and directors. You know, look at the horror genre. There's not enough – there's not enough genre filmmakers supported full stop. In TV, it's like if you're not doing drama like – where, where's the genre, uh, you know, I, I can't believe the BBC don't go, you know, BBC two don't go, no one's doing anything about it. or so even channel four and go, look, we're going to do a half hour weekly slot for six weeks with six new writer directors in the jo- form of genre, whatever genre that is. Um, so I feel like there's less out there on television available. There's the, the, schemes, there are less, you know, also when I graduate from university, so we're talking many years ago now. Uh, you know, there was used to be the film councils, not just the UK Film Council, but there used to be the screen agencies. so Screen West Midlands, Screen Yorkshire, you know, and they created every year they did eight shorts for ten thousand pounds a short, which was nowadays, if you think about digital technology, that's like a twenty-five grand short. Most people I know are now having to finance their own short yeah, films.
0: Yeah.
2: It's so difficult to finance your own short film. Uh and the The pressures and burdens that puts on. So, of course, the only people that can self-finance short films are people that have got money. So, where's all the people that the working class boys in the can't afford to self-finance a film? And if someone can finance a film for 50K of their own money, how are they going to compete against someone that's making it for two grand shot over a weekend? So, it's like there's a real disparity because there's a lack of... And there is stuff out there. Creative England are doing their best. The BFI are doing their best. You know, people are trying to, to Disney and, and, and the NFTS, obviously, Marcus, you're currently on one are doing stuff. There is stuff out there, but I do feel there's less out there now than there used to be. Um, so I think it's got much, much, much more difficult. And and the other reason it's got difficult, and not to scare anyone, because I think there's lots of positives as well, which I, I can come on to, but is that you're now competing in a market that is quite flooded. How do you, the big problem now is how do you get your short film noticed? It's the big thing that there's so many, I get, Sent thousands of shorts, you know, thousands. I I can't watch them all. It's just like I can't watch, you know. I get a lot of shorts by our actors. I get a lot of show reels. I just can't can't watch it all unless there's a reason to watch it. Like it's I can't. There's just not enough time there. There's so much content out there. So how do you get your stuff noticed? You know. I was saying to you earlier, Sam's stuff, I, I contacted Amit after Sam's podcast because I thought Sam's podcast was brilliant that he did and watched all of his shorts and was like, why isn't this guy, mm. what, this guy's body of work is so brilliant and tonal. Like, I can see exactly what he can do. And it's like, he even needs a brilliant piece of writing that they go, it's this voice or he needs to self-generate. But it's like, those shorts are brilliant like and it's yeah. like it's
1: where's the opportunity for someone where's like the that?
2: opportunity for someone like to to, yeah.
0: to break through and, it- and Sam actually recently did a did a uh an evening actually with with Amit where they actually showcased the trilogy um in London I went down for it and I was like that's what he's having to do is he's to, he's to get his shot to get it. notice he's having to put yep. on a night himself self-generate self-generate yeah to look at his work that entrepreneurial side of it is is obviously pretty pretty important And I don't know it's hard because not everybody's not everybody's like that. You know, a lot of people in introverts. And
1: Sam won't be the only Sam out there as well. No, right? there'll be
2: loads of Sam's out there. Well there are I mean like you you know, you, you look at you two, like you're you're primed to to direct something now. Where's the which is why this you know what you're talking about in this podcast and this idea of how you it's that thing we're all interested in as aspiring filmmakers is how you how you make the transition. Like what what is that? And the reality is there is no clear cut way. There is no, there is no singular way that the path is different for everybody. And the reality is it's, it's, it's the journey before you think. So at this point, it's who you've met along the way, the experiences and the attitudes. And unfortunately in 2023, you know, like if you were a dick five years ago, that stuff carries now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like there's a lot of filmmakers in their young prime that maybe didn't treat so, you know, maybe, you know, and we, we've had experiences as a first, I had many experiences with directors that weren't particularly nice. It, you know, so like there's a, there's that, you know, uh, but there are, there are, there are examples of people doing brilliant things and making it happen. and But every time I think about them, they're like, they're people that have self, like you say, entrepreneurially self-generated. Like I think of Dreaming World's Black, phenomenal. I interviewed him when I saw the web series, he's on directors now. He wrote this series and they've just made it as a a quite cheap BBC comedy show that is in they've not given him loads of money to make it. But he's now like it and it's brilliant. I mean, it is really, really good. And it's really successful. It's like there are people doing it, but it's like where are the opportunities for those people? So I'm not I do self-generate, but because I'm I don't write and direct. So I have to work with writers, it it's hard it would have been harder for me now to get a break. You know, because I, you know, when I tried to get a break, I was, I couldn't get doctors. So I worked as a runner on doctors. It's a show set in Birmingham, filmed in Birmingham, my hometown. I'd been a runner on it. I knew a load of the team on it. I just graduated from film school. I was like, I'll get a block of doctors. Doctors is the entry-level BBC show. They came back and said, no, nah, we're looking for experienced directors. If the entry-level shows are looking for experienced directors, where do directors go who don't have a credit to get experience? Same with Hollyoaks. I went to Hollyoaks after Doc, because I said it's a young, skewed show. I'm 28, done this in my body of work, and they were like, "We're looking for experienced directors." Again, if the the entry level soap shows don't want to know, how do you get in? You know, how do you get in? And the reality is, there's not as many misfits being made in the world where I think there's shows where they take chances on young filmmakers. You know, Banana was another example. I would have got Banana regardless of whether I'd done Misfits or not because Russell wanted short filmmakers, regardless of whether they made anything, to make them as sort of individual short films that were part of a larger TV series. We need more Bananas. We need more Misfits. Uh, And there's a room for it. Like I said, you could totally imagine coming up, being re... There should be a coming up on Channel 4 and a coming up on BBC and a coming up on ITV. It doesn't cost much. 50 cat. And each of them can have a different remit. Channel 4 can go, we're just going to do hard, gritty drama. You know, uh, Netflix could do it and go, we just want genre, 30-minute genre pieces. And I'm sure there are lots out there.
0: But, Boosh, you know, when you speak to to execs, do you bring this up and and, and what sort of responses do you get?
2: Yes, yeah. We talk talk a lot about, about, um, about the issues and... The reality is it's it's the execs, the execs, it's, it's the channels and the commissioners that need to create the space. You know, execs mm-hmm. are quite open to giving uh, chances to newer filmmakers they're excited by if they've got the material for that. So obviously if they're doing the crown or stuff that's bigger scale, they're more nervous to bring in a, a new director. I think we talked about this earlier. I mean, I can't remember the name of the producer now. It was the guy that gave Brady Hood his his break on Endeavour. A lovely yeah. producer. I can't remember who it was. I have to go back for my email. We had a, we had a coffee and I was, and we were talking about it. And I said it's really smart to give a new director not a new a director's not got a credit the first block. Now most exec producers don't give the first block because mm-hmm. that's the lead block and that's where everything's set up. But I was saying as someone that's done first blocks, mid blocks, you know, like I did mid blocks on uh, Misfits and and then Human Series One compared to doing lead blocks. You know, yes, lead blocks, you have to make a lot of the creative decisions and choices, but you've got time and you're supported because everybody's in pre-production. When you're on a middle block, everybody's filming. You're on your own pretty much with your DOB and whatever. It's harder. You can't be as supported. So actually giving somebody the bigger shows where there's more support and money kind of makes more sense if if you're excited by the filmmaker. So whereas the reality is I think we spoke about this, giving somebody a new low-budget show is probably more difficult and more likely for them to fall down and, and struggle because there's not the support and the infrastructure. So I don't think it's a case that you can't give a new director a big show. Um, you can if you can support them. That's all it is. Like we all need, even di- like any director needs support. A newer director, by support, probably just needs people around them that are sympathetic to the fact that they've they've never been through it And they just need that support of nurturing and a good producer and a good first and a good dop can do that you know i I have massive sympathy for the filmmakers trying to transition now including you two it is doable people are doing it regularly though you have to stay proactive you have to keep making stuff which is really tricky um and you have to keep the the big things you have to keep trying to go for generals it's really funny how like generals I had six, seven years ago are now coming to fruition. And you have to go into those generals going, they're just generals. There's no guaranteed work out of this and not trying to force work out of the generals. Um, but I do think there is, there is, there, there, there are people cutting and making it through. Alice Seabro is a perfect example, came through with some shorts, developed something, and, and sort of did sex education, sat in the writer's room on sex ed. You know, one of the big things I'll say, and this is something I genuinely believe in, a lot of filmmakers and directors now that I've spoke to in the last sort of few years that have just coming through in the last two years, um, as a, uh, as we, uh, Salim have just put on, and there's a, there's a quite a lot on there, a lot of them have done second unit, so have shadowed a director or have said to a director, can I be considered for second unit directing um, or gone to producers and said, you know, like, so they've gone in with a lesser, they're not asking to kick it off. They're not asking to direct it. They're, once you've got some second unit behind you, I think Isabel Sieb did some um, second unit on something and then got a show, Either she got commission that she self, self-generated. Um, but there's quite a few on there who did some second unit stuff. You're getting paid and you're learning on someone else's time. And you're, you're hopefully being mentored a little bit as well by the, the, the director that you're, you're, uh, you seconding for you or you doing second unit for. So that's, that is actually in TV, I don't know what it's like in film and commercial, but in TV, that's, that's something that's really sort of come around because what's happened is the money's got squashed. People don't want to cut scripts anymore. So what happens is if you're, if you're a good first, you're going, we can't shoot all this on main unit. We need to pull some of this into second unit. And then there is a bunch of days across a block of four or five weeks where there is second unit, you know, ironically on the thing I just did, um, my old tutor who's now wants to, um, move back into directing Leslie Manning, who's a brilliant director, um, and a wonderful human being, she did all my second unit on uh, the long shadow and she was amazing uh and you know he's able to now uh hopefully have meetings from that um
1: uh but second you, it's crazy that she's not working anymore. Anyway. it is
2: absolutely mad she's brilliant and she did a thing years ago called ghost watch which was phenomenal she's done feature things. she's yeah. just phenomenal She's
1: now got a cult following yeah
2: massive she's and she's phenomenal and all of my cast and all of my crew loved her she shot it with alfie biddle who i went to film school with and the second unit, they love the second unit. You know, we only really did like five days of it, four days of it. But, you know, um, yeah. So I think second unit is something that people should look into, consider. Maybe read some of the directors now things, you know, um, because it is something that, it, it one, it does it builds you contacts within a production already existing. And if you imagine, if you manage the second unit, the first block, and they can't find a second block or third block, or if, if you're in luck, there's a four block, so if it's an eight, part series two episodes per block you might end up getting a block later down the line if you do a really good job and they like your material and they haven't got someone and you know the show and you know the cast and people like you and you've got great ideas and the lead director likes you it's a really good way don't go in with expectation just go in with the, what you're doing and, and things sometimes just open up um but yes yeah, so the second unit is is one of the big things i've noticed recently which is how a lot of people have, have, have um crossed over shall we say or got that credit and that exists as a credit
1: there's a lot of people use that as a credit as well yeah that's what we're seeing as well it feels like the way forward um that there there needs to be an acknowledgement of its importance i think and as in like an acknowledgement of the importance of that being part of developing talent because um yeah i think sometimes when it's left to people uh it can be an afterthought and thrown up.
2: Well, I think you know mentor schemes. If I was, if I signed up to a mentor scheme,
1: uh, for example, if
2: I don't know, Directors UK said, "Look, we're doing a scheme where we're going to pay for you to have uh, an assist, not assistant, but like someone wants to shadow you, they'll do your second unit. They have to do your second unit. It's the pre requirement I would then take it. I would very much be interviewing everybody because I'd want to make sure I got the right personality to represent." me and the show away from me and the show if that makes sense and also I really want to support and nurture that person to make sure that they so by putting the responsibility on you and saying you're going to do this scheme and they have to do your second unit, would make directors sharpen up in terms of you know because I take people, I let people shadow you know where 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 and when I can sometimes it's been difficult over the last few years because of COVID and I haven't filmed in London for <laughs> forever um, so it's been quite tricky but um, and where I can, the people I have been mentoring, I've gotten other shows with other directors, I know if I'm not filming so they can at least be on sets with other directors, I let people shadow me, but there's no requirement for me to, you know, and I remember Johnny Allen, who's on directors now, who's an NFTS grad who helped me out and graduate. I taught him a little bit, I think, but we just met via, um, mutual friends and he helped me out, introduced me to a couple of people. And then he graduated and was looking for a break asked me if he could shadow me and I was doing cleaning up and he did a couple of days on cleaning up and it just so happened on one of the days I had loads of stuff we needed to pick up and I left him with a camera and some people for like four hours and he shot a load of this sequence for me and I said put it on your CV and, and uh, I got in trouble by the producer I think for doing that, the executives for doing that for saying he put it on his CV but he did it I mean like, and also if he didn't do it I don't know who else was going to do it um, but he, you know, he's doing, he's smashing it now. He's, he's the lead director of the devil's hour on Amazon. He's done loads of stuff and you know, uh, so I think second, you know, sometimes shadowing can, without the acknowledgement of second unit can lead to stuff. The only reason I did it was cause maybe like having you two on the floor, like I trust and know your work inside out. Whereas if I don't know the, if I've just let someone shadow me because they've, you know, perchance you're less likely to do it unless there's schemes where yeah, and the great thing is the way schemes can work is it, I I would love my second year director to be with me for pre-production so they can see what we're doing. And even do a week with me shooting so they could get a feel for the kind of material I'm getting. The problem is that costs the production money. So the production don't want to spend money on having somebody there. And I don't want to ever ask anyone to come and do that work for free because it's like we are trying is money and I would never have expected people to ask me to do it even if I would have done it, it it's a lot to ask. Whereas if schemes are willing to cover that cost, that is how there's a that's how there's, a, and we, that's what we did on time. It wasn't through directing, but on time, we shot in Liverpool. Liverpool Film Office gave us money to bring in five people from working class backgrounds from Liverpool to and what the producer Simon maloney did is he took it super seriously because he said i want these people to do this and then to go on and be able to keep going so he interviewed loads of people and found out what they're really interested in what they were really interested in and then he placed them in departments where he thought their skill set and their interests would thrive whether that was been on the floor as a runner in costume in makeup and we had five and five people, and they were, their salaries were paid for by London, uh, Liverpool Film Office, which was such a great thing, because the production were happy to do it then, because it's not costing them anything.
0: It's so important to be able to be on a production from prep to premiere, you know, with on, on a show like that, it, it's, it's a blessing. I don't know how
1: else you learn that stuff.
0: No, you don't. You're you
1: thrown to... in and you do it
0: and you learn on it, and yeah, then on the chances job. are you could fuck up. Yep. You could. I remember when I got it, I was even willing to take a loan. I was like, this opportunity so I I would have taken a fucking loan to do it. I didn't even. Yeah, you didn't even know. You didn't ask about salary. Yeah, you got there on the on the day, and they. I think
1: they sent us an offer. That's which correct. they sent us an offer, which was wrong, and then, <laughs> and I I was the only picked up on it because I had actually asked the question. And I was just like, oh, I didn't know what we're getting. I, I thought it was I thought it was free. Wow, um, but
2: yeah. I mean, it's like that's like film school. What you got was a year and a half of like you know. It's why we all consumed years ago. It's why we all consume making ofs on DVDs. It was the closest we could get to a front row seat of how you make, how different filmmakers
1: make movies, so that we can learn. But talent, talent development. is really important.
2: Yeah, it yeah. Re- it yeah, and 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 not doing quick fixes, not doing band aid fixes of giving, putting people into positions where they're not quite ready. But finding ways to support talent as they come up is the thing that I really believe in and not kind of quick solutions to like, well, we need this and this, let's just do that. Because you can damage people's careers and, and by, by doing that, we have to support people coming up. So, which is what Simon Maloney did so beautifully on time was really investing in those people and what they wanted to do and place them and help them. Um, and a lot of them have continued to work and thrive. And, and that's the key here is like, we need to, to
1: build from the, the ground up you know, there's a there's a problem, and I, I think that's exactly it. It's institutions and companies investing in in it, and then someone taking it seriously. Because I think sometimes with productions, they might think because they've had to struggle their way in that giving someone an opportunity like that, it can create a bit of animosity or some sort of like like it's an easy ride, and that's not necessarily what it is. It's just these are things which need to happen because otherwise the industry will be fucked long term. So I guess moving on from the talent development thing, you are always working. Yes. <laughs> so we assume you do a lot of interviews. So a thing I've not really heard much on podcasts is about the interview process. So how do you interview for like um, like a second block director or lead director? No, I mean, I've been really fortunate is the reality,
2: but... Um... I was talking about this recently to the DOPS at the NFTS. Uh, I was talking about the interview process from there, from you know what you expect from, from DOPS, but it's similar to directing. You know, I, I've always gone in and sort of so you get the script. Your agent sends you the script. So first of all, the process is: I've got this project. I'm interested in putting you forward. Are you interested in me putting you forward? There's no chance. There's a chance they might not be even interested in meeting you. But before I go through that, are you interested in me putting you forward? So you read the script and you make an assessment of whether you feel you're interested and that changes across your career. So when you're first starting out, there is no conversation. You know, I email back and go, don't need to read it, put me forward. And I want to, I, I, I can find stuff to get excited about in a project at this point, because I need, I'm hungry to direct and prove people I can direct. Um, the more you go on in your career. Uh, the more you are selective, maybe because you want to start building a body of work that reflects your interests, maybe a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a privileged position to be in. I'm, I'm, I'm aware. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I, I, I get the script and I read it a few times, and I do a lot of script work first. And I, what do I like about the script? What do I think's working? What's interesting? And and that reflects in the interview. When I get into an interview, you know, the the first majority first 20 minutes of the meeting or the first part of the meeting i'm just talking about script talking about the characters the story the themes things that i've picked up on things that i think are important about it things that i'm interested in so that they know that i'm going to lens it in a certain way not by telling them that but by just what they can hear about what i've responded to in a script so you respond first part of an interview and a lot of people jump that they don't go in they don't talk about the script they jump into oh, it's very like this, isn't it? And start showing images. And it's like, first of all, I think producers, and I've been on the other side where I've been an exec producer, you know, uh, putting directors forward and talking to directors about coming on and doing blocks of stuff. You know, you always want people to respond to the material. What do they think? What do they feel? Don't be afraid to say bits where you think, you know, I think this could be sharper and maybe there's room for this. And I'd love to do this with the story and maybe create some space and some internal subjective moments or whatever it is you want to do with the piece. And then you start talking about the visuals, you know. So, and the visuals usually back up what you're saying about the piece. So, if you're talking about things you like in the piece, you might start to say it feels a bit like Adam Kay's The Big Short. You know, it's got that kind of freeing humour, that sort of uh, humility, and that wit. And you might start referencing and talking about that, and talking about crew, lighting, and little things like that. I don't. I I always make a point that it's like, and it's a it's a first their first thoughts and first reactions this isn't what i'm saying it's going to be filmmaking is a journey that first meeting is like i've sat on it for a day and this is the problem i think to prep a proper interview i spend a day i spend half a day on the script reading you know going over the script and then i spend half a day finding images and things that represent the ideas and the things i want to talk about and then put them into mood boards it's why I get really upset when you know and it's happened to me quite a few times. Where I've met for stuff it happened to me actually recently. I met for a feature film. Uh, I spent two days prepping the feature film. Uh, went to the meeting and then got a call the next day, basically being like, um, "They they want they they want they're, they're thinking of someone else who's done a feature film. They they want a the, the filmmaker who's already done a feature film. They don't think you're experienced enough in feature film." And that really upset me. Only afterwards. Initially, I was like, oh, that's fine. That makes sense. You know, it's fine. Afterwards, it upset me because I was like, God, that took me two days. And they had that information before they offered it me. They've got my CV. They can see how many films I've done and the fact that I've not made a debut feature yet. But, But they don't realize. They don't care. They don't think about the fact it took me two days. And I gave them everything I got in that meeting. Casting ideas, script notes, you know, visual reference. I gave it all. And they knew they were never going to give me that job. And that happens quite a lot where people meet people for the sake of meeting it. And as a director, I don't want to meet unless there's a sort of chance that they might give it me, but they should have known going into that meeting. that they they weren't going to do that. There was, there was a big thing there. There was, he's not on the film. So, um, and I was only in that room because the actor that was attached to the film really wanted me to do it. Um, so I was blessed to be there, but they knew I think going in that they weren't going to give it me. So it takes a lot of time to prep an interview. Um, because if you want to give it your best, all of us want to give it our best. Um, and then, you you know, like, I think, you know, when I first started out, I was, I tried to make myself aware of the things that, and even now, actually, do you know what, even now, so in that meeting, I was aware I'd not done a feature film. So I was aware that what I was pitching really was my debut feature and what was, and which is why I gave a lot of script notes on the kind of things and the kind of debut feature I wanted to make with what they were playing with. Um, so if you've not got a credit, you know, some of those questions and some of the things, that, and it's good, I think, and I always did, you need to get ahead of them. So you know, going into a room that there might be concern that you've not got a credit. And so there might be concern that you've not complete, you, you wouldn't complete schedule. So at point some point in the meeting, you might want to say, you know, look, you know, I, I'm aware that you might be nervous about um, the fact I've not got a credit. I feel confident that I'll be able to complete a schedule that we agree on. And But if you are concerned, I'd love to, you know, maybe we find a first that you're comfortable with that I can work with to ease those concerns. You know, you try and address the things that you think that might be worries in advance um, because it shows that you're aware. I I think it shows you're aware and some executives might disagree, but it kind of shows a level of awareness of the process and the things that would be a concern for them and an understanding of what is and isn't their concerns. So like for me, I get a lot of that with tone. So if I get sent funny things, I get a lot of, well, you've not really done much comedy, have you? And so I'm aware of when I'm pitching on stuff that's lighter tone, that that's what, I, what I'll come up against uh, and used as a kind of reason for not getting it. Uh, I had it where I went for a big period show and got down to the last two and didn't get it because I'd not done period. But I knew that going in and did a big pitch about how humans doesn't feel like a period show, but it has the same characteristics when you're dealing with robots and the simps. There's a lot that goes into making them, you know, in the hair, makeup, the costumes have to be perfect steamed. And there's a lot of the kind of like things in period in terms of the detailing that you get in a period show that I was arguing gave me an element of experience. So even though they said that was one of the reasons I kind of flagged why it wasn't an issue. So if I, I don't think I got that because I don't know where to give it me. Maybe they didn't think my work was as good as the person that did, but I, I negated the worry, hopefully. So the reason I didn't get it was because of a perceived worry they had. The reason I didn't get that job was because I wasn't the right director for it at the end, they got someone that was more right, which is totally cool. I prefer to lose out for that reason that I'm not the right director than a perceived worry that has not been talked about in the room. Because the reality is if you don't talk about it, they might not talk about it and it's left unsaid. And it might be the reason you don't get it and you don't want to not get it because I'm a reason that's not been discussed. So if it's comedy that I'm not going to get it, I might put them in put them in touch with some of my work that is more comedic or, that, or talk about why I feel I can bring humor to this and what my strengths are and how they will help the other elements of the show. Um, so yeah, and then and then that's kind of the meeting, really. And you kind of meet, you meet, you go through processes. So early on in my career, you know, you meet, you meet a producer first, generally. And then when you're when you when you're sort of starting out or trying to get your first credit, and you've only got your shorts. Generally, the producer is trying to find new talent. They've found you. They're excited by you. Your first hurdle is to get them excited by you as a person, as well as them excited by your work. And then they then take you up to exec producer level. You meet the exec producer levels. Sometimes it's that's as far as you go. In the case of Misfits, I met Nick, then I met the execs, and then I met the senior exec on the show, runner slash creator Howard, and then I got the job. Um, and that sometimes with me mean, now, it's you know like, and then it gets to a point in your career where you uh, sometimes you just get offered stuff like, "Would Louis, would you consider this?" And you still have to. This is where it gets tricky because you still meet. Because they have to, you have to check that you're the right person, right? But those meetings are weird because you're not pitching against other directors where you know you've got you know. So in those meetings, I still try and do the same thing, even though it's like it's an offer. If you're interested in this, you know, you still go into those because the key thing is I want to make sure that if I've read something and I want to do it and I don't know the people I'm making it with and they've offered it and said, "Would you be interested in doing this?" I want to make sure that my version of an interpretation of what they've given me matches with what they're expecting and wanting to make too. Cause the reality is if that comes together and you have that meeting and they're like, oh, well no, we saw it as being black and white with, you know, this and that, and you see it as very colorful and saturated. And then what's the, well, okay, well, we very much see something very different here and so there's no point continuing. Um, cause so that's the big thing in filmmaking across when that first question you asked me, you know, what does a director do? Where you bring everybody's ideas together, and you are making sure that the colour red that everybody's talking about is the same red. You are the you are the guardian of making sure that every idea is is protected across a singular vision. It's, a director isn't a singular vision. There's lots of visions that go into a singular vision. All that is is that you're translating everything to make sure that it it's all the same for the script. It's all the same tone, vibe, colour. It's that. That's what it is.
1: Are you always creating like mood boards for for your interviews and is that this is that true of like both lead block directing and also like mid block directing which i know you do less of now but
2: oh, so ironically that it's re- that's really tricky um i do it on it I, I, the way i work is if you are in, interview me for a mid block or a lead block i'll do the same level of work i might not necessarily show the mood boards if i don't feel a. if i'm meeting for a mid block i might not necessarily show everything uh for example humans they were already filming. And when I went for my interview, I hadn't realized that they'd announced the cast. So I was talking about casting ideas and things. And I, but I said to them, I said, look, and I think I realized just as I went in and saw that they'd announced the cast the week before. And I went in and said, look, I came up with all this just as a response to the script. So I hadn't, there's no pre-knowledge here. I know you've got a cast, but just to give you an idea of what I was thinking and feeling so you can understand the tone of what I'm talking about. I had it on a job. And again, I don't think I got the job because I don't think they liked me or my work or I wasn't right where the reason they gave my agent was that I went for a mid-block or something and they said he came in and pitched and presented as if he was presenting the lead block and we've already got a lead block director. But it's like, I kind of said to my agent, was like, oh, maybe you went in too prepared. I was like, but how can you talk about a show when you've not seen anything, you're just reading a script? How do you present your... I could have just sat there and talked about the script, but it doesn't show what I'm about or ideas i wasn't saying it had to be this i was just saying this is my response yeah it sounds a bit harsh to that well and it might have been that my response was so far away from where they were going that they were like he's but it 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 didn't have to be... well i wasn't saying to them this it has to be this i was just saying this is my response just so you can see that i can respond to material and have ideas and you know um so it's really tricky like but my theory is that happened to me once and I would prefer to go in and have that note than go in and lose a job because I hadn't done enough. Do you see what I mean? So it's like, that's on them. They didn't give it me because they felt I'd done too much work. They felt this, they felt that. It, like, I don't know how I could have pre- prepared that meeting any differently unless I just sat and spoke about the script, which maybe I should have done. But sometimes when you're talking, you want to illustrate what you're talking about with Moogles. And the reality is I continue to do so the job I'm on at the moment. You know, we we did... I pitched for it. I interviewed against other directors, met for it, presented, got it. And then since I got it, I've continually, continued to build mood boards. And what I do is my mood boards start out very broad. And then the more time I spend with the writer, the more time I spend with the script, I start to really focus them down, take images out, build new images. And also so like I'll talk very specifically or very um unspecifically about tone. And then as I get into it, I'll do mood boards for, you know, so the thing I'm doing, you know, covers. Various um branches of institution, press, police you know uh, media, this, that, so I might start to do mood boards around different institutes or whatever. um I just think mood boards are really like I said earlier, like it's a great way for me to communicate what the color red is because the color red can mean so much for so many people, and a mood board goes, I talk about it, and then I show my designer and I show people, and they go. This is this is the red I'm talking, and they go, yeah, great. Oh, that's the film i do you know, it's that it's a great way, given that we work in a visual world, sharing references, whether they're films, images, whatever, to go. This is this is the thing I'm talking about. So there's no confusion, because that's where the biggest fuckups happen in in film and TV and any art form is when, particularly collaborative art form, is when communication hasn't been clear and everybody's making something different you see a large student film level where there's a lack of a coherent leader communicating clearly what it is and everybody thinks they know what it is and everybody's everybody's idea of what it is is totally different happens on ironically happens on big big tv shows as well where you hear horror stories of execs getting rushes and getting weekly assemblies where they're like this is not what we thought we were going to get, and it's because it hasn't been clearly communicated. And I think if I show you the color red on a bit of paper, and there's the a difference in terms of your your colorblind or whatever, there's no way we can argue differently when I present you that same color red in the rushes and the weeklies. Do you know what I mean? So
0: a lot of what you're saying, though, is 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 what we witnessed on you know House of the Dragon in prep was about. You know, everybody being on the same page with like the color red. You know, we had it with we we saw it a lot with wigs. Like, you know, wigs in different scenes and and, and hero wigs and this, that and the other, and that not being communicated and becoming a big fucking thing, becoming a real big thing just simply because departments were not aligned with the director on what it was. And because they've got experience, they know, like, well, what do you mean? Do you mean this or do you mean this? Because this is a hero wig, this is not, and there's a fucking ten grand price difference between the two.
1: And you want to do this thing which is going to fucking destroy this wig. That can't be done. You need to think about your sequence so we can swap it out. And then that takes time. The specifics of it is.
2: It's why I think, you know, like tests are great. I always try and do camera tests the week before we start filming, because then I'm making sure that the, that everybody's agreeing on, for me, the color palette, the, the 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 styling. It forces costume and makeup to put things on camera that they're like, you know, and ironically, the biggest mistakes are generally when there's been no prep and things have happened at a rush with no, for communication i mean the big thing i do which i think you should do on every project i don't know if i made you to do this I, I definitely have made other years do it um is we basically page turn the scripts i think we did do it with you i think we did yeah. it with all of you yeah, in the is. room yeah. where we basically everyone picks a character and you page turn the scripts in the room now i do that with my crew but we don't read the dialogue what we do is we go through each scene and it's really hard when you're doing seven hours of telly that takes two days and Jane Featherstone was the person that made me do this when we did cleaning up. She was like, we're going to do this thing where you're going to page turn in front of all of the HODs. And I was really kind of like, not against it, but I was like, I don't understand why. I feel like I'm constantly communicating to them and I'm I'm across and I did it. And I was like, afterwards, I was like, Jane's a genius. Like the reason you do it is because it's the only time you have all your HODs together. And ironically, when I think about it, we did it in film school. I didn't as an echo because we were all together in the studio. And because at film school, you're in a big studio, you're all together all the time we constantly would sit around a table and page turn the scripts. And so we did that on cleaning up. I did it on the last thing where we only had six steps. We did it all six before we got the seventh. And what that does is I literally page turn each scene and I give over information, things I'm going to change, things I'm going to add, and they ask questions. And what generally happens is costume and makeup go, about this scene, we're nervous about how many essays. How many essays are you envisioning? And I go, well, look, I'd love to if we could afford it. I'd love this many. And then the AD team go, oh, okay. Well, we might need extra people. When's that day going to be scheduled? And they make a note, and then they know what they've got to ask the first layer. But going through that takes two days and a lot of productions are nervous of why are we paying people to sit in a room for two days with the director page turning, but they're the most invaluable. And if you, if I'm going to do a short again, it's whatever, if whatever I do, I do that now as part of the process, it's something that I have to do now is it. And it's horrible for me because I feel like when I first started doing it, I felt like I had to have all the answers. And now I don't feel like I have to have all the answers. I feel like I'm communicating everything I've got to where I'm up to the process. And if there's things i can't answer i'm like come back to me i'll have an answer on that but i need but i try and keep people like the writer in there and other people that i can lean on and go are you happy if i do this so again it's just making sure everyone's on the i mean all this the big thing about filmmaking is and i don't want to teach people to suck eggs but if that is the correct terminology of that phrase but i still don't know what it means no normally (laughs) i i just hear people use it and it sounds smart and i'm dyslexic so i always steal the phrase but it's everything i'm saying on this on this podcast like, I don't want to basically, like, sound like, um, and I, I I hope I don't do this when I when I teach and when I talk, talk to, to people. He's like, the thing about filmmaking, I said this, me and you guys talked about this earlier, like, it's the same regardless of whether you're doing a big movie, you're doing a big TV show, or you're doing a short film or a commercial. It's a director standing with an actor or talent in, a, in front of a camera trying to figure out how to tell us or convey a story or a message. It doesn't matter if you're on House of the Dragon or you're on... A thirty-second Adidas commercial, or you're on a short film, or you're on a TV show. It's the same thing, and so all the things we talk about, it's like it's the same process, just blown up or shrunk. And so, like everything I'm saying isn't and shouldn't be new. Maybe the interview process, because there's a there's a thing where if you've never been through it, you've never been through it. But everything else, if you've made a short or you've made anything. The process, there should be nothing alien about the process. There's more people, but when you shut it all out and all the noise and when action is shouted, it's you looking at a story being told for a camera with talent generally, right? It's the same, but there's a disillusionment that it's not, and you guys will have witnessed being on the biggest show on the planet that doesn't matter what show you're on. Once you've actually seen that and got that, once the curtain has been pulled and you've gone, oh, yeah, it's exactly the same. Than what I've been doing in my short films, and the best person that said it. So this is a little, a little anecdote that I want to share because I was privileged to have gone to the NTS. But we had Paul, um, Paul Thomas Anderson came and did a masterclass when we were when we were at film school, and it was when The Master had come out. So we did like a, well, we went and did a forty mil print of it, and uh, they did a screening at the school as well. And so I saw it twice, and then he came to the q and did A, Q&A and he said, you know, he said, go tell this great anecdote, which is exactly what I've just said, but summarised in a anecdote basically which is he said he said you know uh he had a moment in his career and he said he spent his whole career like you know if he needed rain his brother would hold a hose pipe and create rain and very do-it-yourself kind of way to making films as he kind of grew up and then he said he's on magnolia on the biggest film of his career with the biggest movie star in hollywood tom cruise and he's behind his monitor and he said and i felt really overwhelmed uh, and he he probably tells it better on a podcast somewhere or somewhere out there. But he said I was sitting behind the monitor and I was really overwhelmed and really I mean, it was a sequence where it starts raining frogs and you know all hell breaks loose. He they said he looks up from his monitor during a take and there's two guys on ladders just throwing plastic frogs at Tom Cruise. And he said he just had this epiphany moment where he's just like he's got the biggest movie star on the planet on a, on his biggest film. And it's exactly the same. It's, it, it, these two guys representing his two brothers with a hose pipe trying to make it rain on a movie. And actually what was in front of him was the biggest in his perception, the biggest movie star, the biggest movie of his career. But it's exactly the fucking same. It's just two guys trying to make it look like it's raining frogs. And you can only make it, you know. So it's like the practicality of filmmaking is the same at whatever level you're doing it. And the minute you realise
0: that, it does unburden you a little bit. Um, you know the, the the documentary snippet that we showed you earlier on that obviously the audience don't know about. Maybe one day someone will see it. Um, but that our both mine and Marx's conclusion at the end of it is that, isn't it? That ultimately it is no fucking different. The thing is, is that the the scale's different. Um, but it's actually the very it's the it's the same thing. And I think that I think I think going back to that point you made before that. You know, when when one is so passionate to try and be a working director and do the thing they want to do, we do, out of our inferior complex or whatever it is, our insecurity, build a speculation that's not reality about what actually goes on behind the curtain. And you think, fuck, that Lewis Arnold, he's got some special powers that I don't have. Do you know what I mean? How's he doing that? How's, you know, whoever doing that, Rose Glass doing what? But actually, it's not that. And that's been built up in your head. It's the same fucking thing. I'm sure, like... I said about a few times
1: before, like the the biggest revelation about the Thrones thing was that seventy eight percent of it we could already do. It was just, yeah. and I remember one of the first things I said to Miguel um, when when he was shooting, I was like, "Do you not just just think this is fucking weird. It's just people in dress up, playing pretend, and just taking it really seriously." And it was like, "Yeah, it's it's really weird."
2: But it's interesting what you just said because the twenty two percent, the twenty two percent that you can't do is. It, is the twenty percent the most twenty two percent the most directors can't do, which is where you get support from stunt directors, VFX supervisors, gaffers. The twenty there's, there should always be a, a large percentage of a job that you can't do because that's how you challenge yourself. And also, all directors can't do everything. Like I don't know, I, I still I I have an idea of VFX, but I still need a VFX supervisor to help me to achieve certain things. And if I don't, I'm not pushing myself enough. Same with stunts. Same with so it's like you should always have twenty two percent of a job that you don't know how to do minimum and that you're trying to find people to support you to achieve. So, you know, I think, yeah, it's really interesting what you just said, Oz, though, because there's two things. What you just said as well is the grass is always greener syndrome and perception uh, is so important. You know, I, I always remind myself, uh, In a couple of the directors now, people said they didn't want to do it because they didn't think they'd achieved anything. And I said. I said to them, there's always people below you that look up to where you are and want to be where you are, but you're too busy looking from where you are, looking to where you want to get to think that you've not achieved anything. And I said, it's really important that you guys and wherever you're at, whoever it is, lay down the foundations of your journey early. Because if you just do it at the point that you think you've reached somewhere where it's acceptable to do it, people have missed the journey you know so you have to lay these things down as you're going uh but i everybody no matter where you are filmmakers look at their careers and look at where they want to go and what they want to do next it's just in our nature you know I, I art is never finished it's abandoned and then you're on to the next thing like that's what i believe i i think most directors are the same like we don't like watching our work because we see the things we should have done differently the things we want to do differently. You know, and only people like George Lucas constantly go back and open it up and thinker and change and change. But I think we all have that thing that George Lucas does that. If we had to keep watching that thing that we did 10 years ago, we'd want to go back in and fix and change things. So you kind of have to abandon it and move on. So we're always looking that way, not that way. We're always looking forward, not back. So. But I feel like it's really, this is this thing that I was doing earlier about having a group of people and a network of people to understand that. Because if you're on your own and you just feel that you're always looking up, it could be quite depressing. But understanding that people that you admire are also having that same feeling. It's like that feeling doesn't go away. The nervousness of a job never goes away. I always get a job and have like two minutes of kind of like, oh, great. And then the worry and the insecurity comes in. of fuck, I've now got to deliver. Uh, I'm scared. Am I capable? that stuff never goes away. Ironically, what I've learned is all the insecurities of being a director or an artist or whatever, you know, however you want to phrase it, whatever your discipline is, you just learn to cope. And I'm still learning to cope and be better with certain things. Like I don't, I, I get stressed and, and don't deal with stress very well. You are constantly learning how to deal with the insecurities and the pressures of being a director at whatever level, um. You know, and it it, it it doesn't change from wherever you are or whatever you're doing, whatever level. Um, you know, there's a real sort of, uh, and there's a real joy in knowing when you kind of know that, you know, because you can have those moments where you can step outside of the situation in your head and go, do you know what, this is this is normal. It It does help. It helps a little bit. You know, the problem is, you know how many of us have got the ability, my wife, she's maybe one of the few people I know that has the ability in a situation to step outside herself and go, okay, this is normal. And then step back in. I mean, like, you know, I, I'm much more, I'm much more, my heart is on my sleeve, basically. <laughs> it's my problem. Um, but yes.
0: Let's bring it to, you know, director being attached to projects before they commission. So you've done three shows recently that are based on True Stories, Des, Sherwood and The Long Shadow now that's coming out. So were you involved in in those shows before um, as an exec in the development of it, or were you just coming on as director?
2: Uh, So with each of those, very different. So Des was my own show. So Des was Luke Neal, the writer of Des Saw Charlie Says, which was the grad film I did at NFTS, and came to me with the idea of uh, adapting Killing for Company, which was the book by Brian Masters, who is the biographer of Dennis Nielsen, and adapting that into a drama. And he'd written a little script around to sort of illustrate what he was thinking, uh, and I kind of read the script and wasn't that interested. And then I met Luke, loved Luke's take, loved Luke what wanted what Luke wanted to do. Read the book and was like, okay, great. So we went back and and started working from sort of scratch. We went back and said, look, what you want to do is what you've written. Let's write what you want to write. So he'd never written before. He was an actor who wanted to sort of write, and this was his project, I and mean, he was great and that process was phenomenal uh, and it took five years from me having that meeting in Luke loop to it being on telly and, and, and being received. And so that was my show and it went, it was hard, you know, we developed it. We took it to companies, companies, one company optioned it for a year, didn't do anything with it. We took it back. We took it to another company, then it was developed a different channel. They didn't commission it. And then we went to ITV who commissioned it and, and backed it, uh, David, Tenant was on board really early on. I was working on, I was doing Broad Church at the time, which is the great thing about being a jobbing director in some ways is that you, it brings you into contact with actors and people that can help you get stuff commissioned that you can build relationships with. So David attached himself really early on, which is really the only reason we, we got to make it because I think people, you know, Luke had done a great thing and found a really great way into the story, which was not. Was, was opening the story basically on the arrest and not focusing on the years of his murders uh, because we didn't want to tell that story. We didn't want to do a sensational sort of a murder trope sort of show about the murders themselves. We wanted to do something more psychological, which the book is really. Uh, so that was kind of me in you know, a sort of more of an exec producer capacity and director, slight writer, how on, crafting, developing, and taking a project from conception fruit uh, and I, I just done that on cleaning. So ironically I took cleaning up and there's at the exact same time. I think there was a month in between, like I met Luke and then I met me and Mark were, were friends and we were trying to find something together and he had this idea, the difference with Mark is Mark had the idea, then came to me a week later. He got a script. We did a draft we did, I gave a couple of notes, not many, I don't think we, we talked about it, we developed it a little bit. I then took it to Jane Featherstone because I was doing broad church. Uh, took it to Jane Featherstone and she literally, that got, that was commissioned within six, seven months of Mark, six months of Mark bringing me that script, uh, and me going to, to it with Jane. It was commissioned to ITV. It was crazy. And then literally we got it. I think we got it six months. We went, as soon as Sheridan was attached, it was, it was greenlit. And then we made it the following year. Des took me like, like, yeah, like I say, took three and a half years to get it commissioned. Um. And you have to believe in the project. Like I had to believe in the project and I had to believe in Luke and I do. I think Luke's wonderful we, we're doing Sync at the moment together. And, um, I think he's brilliant and you have to believe in the project. And then the other projects you mentioned like time, for example, I mean, time ironically is one of the time is basically the feature film I was developing as a 25 year old. So I was basically making a prison film cause I used to work as a, I used to strip paper for a plasterer. So I'd go into a house and strip all the wallpaper all the, get rid of all the dodgy plaster. And then he'd come in and skim and, and plaster the walls. And he, one lunchtime, I found out he used to be a prison officer. They worked, around to governor and in the process had like lost his wife, didn't take his children anywhere cause he was scared of building, bumping into ex cons and this whole job had, had changed his whole life and who he was as a person and I was really interested in that. So we made the short film Stained and then we made, we were developing the, the longer film based on Ronnie Thompson's book. And so when that all fell apart, Tom Sherry, who I'd worked with on another job, came to me and said, I've got a prison show with Jimmy McGovern, Sean and Stephen weren't attached at this point. And I said, man, I'd, I'd love to do it. Um, he knew that I'd developed a prison film years ago. He knew that I knew that world. He knew that I was interested in, in that story. Uh, and they came to me and they asked me to, to do it. And I was in post on DES and I would have had to walk off the post of DES to do time. And I was going to do it. I was going to walk. And at that point, Sean and Steven were attached. I think they came. So he told me about it like a year before. Then he came to me a year later and said, it's commissioned to BBC we're shooting this summer. You need to start prepping a couple of months so you're up for it. And I was like, I thought about it. I read it. I loved it. And I had this sort of thing where I was like, I've been on dance for three or four years or whatever. Can I walk away from it at the stage or in post? I just didn't think I could. And I really considered it and I let go of it and said, no, I can't do it. And then. Fortunately for me, unfortunately for the, the director that was on it, the director that they got on it, COVID happened. That guy uh, had a, a pregnancy or something. He, uh, him and his partner were having a baby. The pregnancy ended up in coming now where the new shoot dates had moved back to, so they lost their director. They parted ways with their director. And so I got a call being like, will you come and interview for it? So um, I went and interviewed uh, against other directors for the job. And, um, I, I just, I, I really went for it. I really felt like it was a full circle moment for me. Like that, that was my show to lose. And I really went for it. I was really fortunate that uh, Jimmy, Tom Sherry, the executive producer, who's a good friend who I'd worked with as a producer had said to me, who knew that he'd developed Des for a year at a company and loved it. And they locked me in. We, we had to, we, we parted ways amicably, um, because it wasn't, it just wasn't quite working. And they saw it differently than how I me and Luke saw it. But Tom was a big champion of that. And he very astutely sort of said, look, is there, he'd read the scripts and he was like, is there any way that we can get access to Dez so I can show Jimmy? Because I think Jimmy will respond to this. So I, I managed to get him cuts to Des, even though it hadn't, I don't think it'd been finished, graded or, or mixed. It was just an, the offlines and Jimmy McGovern saw those. And that was the reason I got time. It wasn't my pitch. It was that Jimmy watched Des So there was something that, that Tom had seen that he knew Jimmy would respond to. I think it was the pace. Jimmy really, he, I mean, he came on my interview and I, Jimmy McGovern, I'm a hero of mine. The street, you know, I love the street. He, he's just a genius cracker but he i came on the the interview and i said oh jimmy i'm such a fan and he went oh yeah great great he went man tell me your editor wow des is so well edited who's your editor and my editor's is a genius Sasha. Sasha spark is a genius so we spent the first half hour of the interview just talking about how, how much of a genius my editor is and the pacing of, of des and how i said that you know sasha would fight to cut scenes instead of cutting scenes like that we cut holes and it was easier for me to do that on something like Des because it was my own show. It was easier to go, do you know what? Let's just cut this, this strand. Let's cut this, you know, to give room so we don't have to cut these kind of intense interviews with this man as quick as you would, if you wanted to keep it all. Uh, so that, so when I got into time, I was able to use the same arguments with Jimmy where I was like, look, I think we have to cut scenes instead of cutting scenes to be pacing. So time has a very similar, ace i think to des in some ways
0: des is brilliant man i've, I've got it on dvd it's a tremendous piece of work i think i think that what one of the things that really like stuck out to me when i watched it was how the tone permeated through everything into how he acted into how your camera moved everything it was fucking brilliant man right i mean it was a like, great
2: team it was um yeah i mean a great team. i always talk about Whatever there's a there's a one there's a really there's a shot in it that I'm really proud of that it's just not me like it's not mine it's like it's the interview where Des has decided that he's no longer going to cooperate with the police and it's like a a wide that slowly pushes into Dennis's face as he says no comment and that was one of those perfect examples of you know you have a plan going in as a director and then you go onto the floor, you rehearse it with the actors and you talk about it with your grip and you enable your team to feel they can be creative. And our grip Robin, an old grip that had been, been around for years. And I, he, I tried to continually liberate them by sending them shot lists and allowing them to put ideas forward. You know, we wanted, a, we just wanted a simple wide shot that kind of just pushed over the tables and he went. You know, he said, "I could really get you right into here if you wanted." And we said, "Well, well what would that look like?" And we did it with standings. You know, by standings, I mean we're not about show. It was the runner and the first AD sat in. You know, we did it, and we and you can't. Kind of, yeah, it was Graham. Yeah, um, and you went. So Graham drove as my first AD. Was my first AD for years. He's now producing. He's just on boiling point. The TV series. He, he's just doing a another show. Brilliant guy. Yeah, he's brilliant. And uh, he, you know, we just realized that we could do it. And then I was able to go, do you know what? I can tell the whole scene in this one shot. And then that meant that we had a, you know, two-hour window for that scene. We did it in 45 minutes We because we had great actors that knocked it out of the park in two takes as well. And and then we had time at the end of the day to spend on something that we might have had to do in a rush where we are like, right, let's. So it's about, you know, it's a great example, Des, of, of the team. And that time was similar. The team just working together to unlock and, and not being kind of uh, closed off to sort of changing the plan. Um, And then Sherwood, just to finish Sherwood was very much a, they came to me with a project. Uh, Would I direct it? I pitched, I I actually didn't pitch. I kind of met them. I was shooting time and I wasn't going to do it it, because I didn't have the time to read it. And then I got a call being like, they need a decision by Friday. So I think on the Thursday night we wrapped, and I read it on the way car journey home. Read it and went, yeah, you know, I do quite. There's something in this. So I really, I'm interested in having a conversation. So I think I actually didn't pitch, pitch. I had a conversation with them about the things I liked, and then I had a separate meeting with James Graham, the writer, and uh, had a bit more of an idea of what I was thinking and feeling. And then they they offered it, they offered me. And originally they wanted me to do all six, but I um I'd just been away from my kids. We just ironically when I was. I was just about to have my second child and I didn't want to be in Manchester for eight months. So I said, look, I said, and it worked out for I said, look, I'd love to do the first block and then bring in another director to do the second block. Uh, but you know, that worked out because the scripts, the scripts weren't ready because it was such a quick turnaround for James. And that's often the case, you know, directors sometimes can't do the entire series because scripts aren't ready. Scripts have even written as you're shooting block one, you know? Um. And on The Long Shadow, I was just fortunate that the scripts were ready. Or they were ready to a point where we knew we'd have six by prep and seven by the time we shot. So, um, but yeah, that was...
0: Time's one of them shows where, like, most people that I know that have watched it, which is nearly everyone, they would watch one fucking episode and they just have to sit and watch all of it. Yeah, because yeah. it's just not
1: enough. The opening of it, you're just in. The opening is so well executed, yeah. like because you I think we, know I think we what... watched
0: it at the same time, didn't we, Marcus? I think one, we
1: did. And also Claire Kilner, I think I talked about it earlier. She was, she came in one day. She was like, I just watched this show on BBC. It's, I'm addicted. It's great. It's called Time. Like everyone should watch it. And yeah, talking about it there, like it, it really sort of like travelled.
2: No, oh, yeah, I mean it's, it's great. I mean there are people that watched it, my family included, who uh, who watched it and then. Um, didn't watch anything past episode one because you know we tried to put hope in there but it is a harrowing watch i'm aware that it's i think a lot of my work is is not particularly easy um yeah so it's like there were people that sort of admired it but didn't follow through with it and you know we're lucky to have an audience of one so you know i'm grateful for anybody that that watches really but um i know that my stuff won't appeal to everybody but there were people that kind of got to the end of it one and was like yeah I can't do any more this is too too harrowing it's too um, it's too too hard
0: but yeah so we want to dig into your process a little bit um, okay and we want to just talk about so say congratulations Luis, you got a job what's the first thing that you do you know how how did you break do you break scripts down when you're doing something like time or long shadow or test? god
1: we love a cliffhanger so that concludes the episode with lewis for now so make sure you tune in next week and we'll we'll dig down further into the craft for you all it's gonna be packed full of nuggets i'm sure as ever so if anyone does happen to be listening get your questions in at the directors take and we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large and we'll do our best to tell you we want to shape this as a resource for you so do get your questions in and reach out to us on instagram which is the director's take podcast and also on twitter or x which is at director's take and leave us a review please 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 leave us a review it helps so much and share on socials do all that fun stuff we're a new podcast and we need all the help we can get so i think that's it until next time keep learning keep failing and keep the faith